What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? you, you, you. This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And we welcome you to the Friday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Normally at this time we're taking your phone calls, but today we're going to do a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion because we got a whole bunch of emails and we want to answer as many questions as possible. So today... It is going to be our producer, Charles Berry, me, Tom Price, and Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very good. You ready for some emails? Let's do it. Here we go. This is a fascinating one from Gordon in Sacramento. Gordon says, I don't believe the Lord's Prayer was intended to be something we should recite word for word. I think it was intended simply as an outline of the kinds of things we should pray about. What do you think it is? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I... Uh, I both agree and don't agree with you. Okay. All right. Um, It is the teaching of the Catholic Church, and has been for 2,000 years, that the Lord's Prayer provides an outline that should structure the shape of Christian prayer. In fact, St. Augustine wrote a famous letter to the widow Proba on how to pray, Mm -hmm. in which he made that exact claim. He said, if you pray anything at all, it ought to be structured by the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. That's what all real Christian prayer reduces to. So, mm. you know, you don't you don't pray for the new Ferrari in your in your seventeen car garage. <laughs> uh, you you pray for your daily bread and that God's will be done. Or, you know, words to that effect. On the other hand, uh, it's definitely presented in the text as a formula that you should recite. I mean, in that Christ says, This then is how you should pray. And then he enumerates it. Yeah. And the fact that 2,000 years of Catholic tradition and Christian tradition disagrees with you should weigh on your conscience a bit, right? <laughs> yeah. That the, your, your private judgment on this matter versus pretty much every other Christian that's ever lived since the dawn of the Christian Church ought to be, I think, determinative. One would think so. Gordon, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from John. Uh, I'm trying to find a book that is not overtly religious, but would help my atheist son move towards God. Do you have any recommendations for that? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, the book Mind and Cosmos by Thomas Nagel. Ah. And <clears throat> Nagel <clears throat> is an atheist, does not believe in God, but he wrote this treatise uh, on the why he is not a materialist. Okay. So it is a, it's an attack on materialism and on on materialism, the materialism that is often uh, uh, assumed in in uh, the neo-Darwinian biological synthesis, right? Okay. And so, um, and Nagel is no shoddy philosopher at all, at all. Uh, so it, it doesn't it doesn't get you all the way to theism, uh-huh. but uh, but it's uh, it's if you're if you're kind of locked in a materialistic mindset, it'll it'll knock you out of your dogmatic slumbers to cite David Hume. Hope that's helpful for you and for your son, John. Thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Sharon. You often speak about the parables of Jesus. What is your favorite parable, Dr. Andrews? Mm, that is a good question. What is my favorite <laughs> parable of Jesus? That's a, it's a little bit like asking who your favorite child is. You know? yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I can do that, but I, um, 
Uh, shoo, 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 shoo. Favorite parable, favorite parable. You know, I'm, I mean, that, this maybe makes me kind of cliche, but I am kind of, I'm kind of partial to the to the, the prodigal son. Oh uh, yeah. And, and the good Samaritan. <clears throat> couple of great ones yep. there. Appreciate your uh, email, Sharon. We're doing a special mailbag <laughs> edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Becca writes to us, can you please explain why Jesus had brothers and sisters in the gospel? Were they children of the Blessed Virgin, or did St. Joseph have a previous marriage? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, they were definitely not children of the Blessed Virgin, who is perpetually virgin, and that's the dogma of the faith held from the very beginning. Um, and so we're left with two other possibilities, both of which have been contemplated in sacred tradition. One is that Joseph had children from a previous marriage, that he was a widower. Uh-huh. Um, the other one, which I think is actually more strongly implied in the text, is that these were Jesus's cousins, and actually the children of a woman named Mary, the wife of Clopas, who okay. was a cousin to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Oh, very good. Becca, thanks for your email. Sebastian says, I'm new to the Catholic faith. Would a fast from technology be a valid Lenten sacrifice? Or do Catholics only give up <clears throat> excuse me, things related to food like coffee or chocolate, et cetera, during Lent? Oh, Zang, man, you, you are you are I love where you're going. That is a fantastic fast. And I think of infinite infinitely greater value to your mm-hmm. spiritual life than uh, you know, than simply fasting from chocolate or sugar or what have you. Now, you know, go ahead and fast from chocolate and sugar too. Yeah. They're not particularly good for you either. But but I mean, in terms of what what's pernicious in your spiritual life, I mean, for most people in the modern world, myself included, the temptation of a distraction mm-hmm. is uh, is 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 enor- What was I saying? That was a joke. Um, <laughs> it's just enormous and and threatens to do uh, tremendous harm to our spiritual lives. I mean, if you think about it, ultimately, our spirituality takes place primarily in our attention. Yes. Yeah, I mean that that's that is the faculty of the soul that's most interior, and that's most relevant to your actual moral action is what you pay attention to, and the discipline of attending to that, uh, heedfulness in the language of tradition, mm-hmm. is just is just fundamental to spiritual growth. So, you know, if if sugar is a bigger distractor to you than your cell phone, well, then you know go for the sugar, but. But for most people today, I think the cell phone is is distraction A number one. I I observed a job interview once a couple of years ago, and the the uh, the the interviewer uh-huh. seemed fairly uninterested in the questions or the answers that that the interviewer was asking the interviewee, and hmm. it was kind of obscure to me why is this interview even taking place. And then when we got to the end of the interview, and I wasn't the one being interviewed, I was yeah. just observing it. The interviewer remarked, well, you're probably wondering why I called you in for this interview. And the real reason was I wanted to see if you could sit in the room with another human being for 10 minutes and stay off your phone. Ooh, ouch. Mm-hmm. I must admit uh, that every every Lent for probably the last 10 years, I have given up social media. And after like the second or third day, I realized I don't miss this at all. Um, so there is a book that our caller, <clears throat> I would uh, recommend that, that uh, our caller read. Okay. It's by the journalist Nicholas Carr, and the title of the book is The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Wow. So put aside your electronics and read Carr's book. Sounds like a good one there. Uh, Sebastian, thanks so much for your email. <laughs> We're going to come back in just a few moments here with lots more from the EWTN Call to Communion mailbag. And if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Back in a moment with lots more Call to Communion. 
It's the Friday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. If you've written to us uh, via email in the last couple of weeks, you just might hear your question answered on today's uh, mailbag edition of the program. Interesting question here from Isaac, who says, Do I have to believe every statement that a saint said or wrote is true? Also, would the church allow a person to be canonized whose theology was incorrect? Okay, thank you very much for the question. You are absolutely not required to believe everything that a saint said or wrote. In fact, you are morally obligated to reject all of the nonsense that any saint ever articulated. Ah. And uh, there are some saints who are very popular saints in the Catholic tradition and often read and quoted that I will not name at the risk of offending half of our listening audience, (laughs) um, that I take a kind of personal delight in debunking when they say manifestly stupid things, Mm. right? And saints are human beings that can say manifestly stupid things. I I remember I had a conversation with a woman who's now deceased, and uh, she made a a statement that I considered to be superstitious and outlandish, and I said, well, that's that's not true at all. And she said, well, saint so-and-so said that. And I said, well, Saint So and So said something stupid and outlandish. Yeah. I remember, she, but he's a saint. And I said, "Yes, he was holy, and he's in heaven, and better man than I am." But on this issue, he was very wrong, you know. And you're perfectly allowed to do that. Absolutely allowed to do that. Okay. And uh, um, and then, is it possible for a person to be canonized who who uh, who held erroneous opinions? Absolutely, yes, a hundred percent. It's possible to be canonized and hold erroneous opinions. And mm. you know the in the in the whole Catholic intellectual tradition, no one uh, has the status in the Latin Church that Thomas Aquinas has. I mean, he is he is the model theologian. He's called the common doctor of the Church, given mm. common in the sense that what he says on almost every topic can be held to be authoritative almost almost every topic but thomas was wrong on some things okay you know thomas uh before the dogma of the immaculate conception for example was proclaimed thomas denied the dogma of the immaculate conception and, and there are scholars that debate like did he really deny the dogma as we hold it today or not but you know he wasn't a big promoter of it to be sure um, and so he got that one wrong and and thomas himself when you read thomas he'll sometimes say well you know here's this opinion that some people hold, and it's wrong, and that's what I held when I was younger, and now I hold this other opinion. And hmm. um, Augustine, also, he wrote, towards the end of his life, he wrote a book called The Retractions, where he went back through all of his published corpus and said, I was wrong here, I was wrong there, wow. I was wrong here, I was wrong there. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, you, you, they're not going to elevate somebody, they're not going to canonize somebody who, 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 in their lifetime, knowingly denied a dogma, because that would make them a heretic. Right. Right. Uh, so heretics aren't going to be made saints, but you can be you can be in error and not be a heretic. Isaac, thanks so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Peter writes to us from Minnesota. Hi, Dr. Andrews. Can you please speak to the Catholic perspective on fulfilling the law or obeying commandments, particularly after being Presbyterian yourself? I'm very steeped in the theology of John Calvin. And I often have a hard time understanding how I could love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength to the extent that you could say I am fulfilling the law. Thanks for your time, Peter, in Minnesota. Oh, yeah. I love this question. Absolutely. Um, So, so let me, let me, let me, first of all, let me just address the question of what does it mean for a Catholic to love God above all things? And I, I used to suffer from the same existential dilemma that you have, okay? Mm -hmm. And for for a couple of reasons. One is when I was a child growing up in the Presbyterian tradition, 
I, I heard a lot of praise for people who were enthusiastically, pervasively, uh, expressively religious. You know, if a person, every time they opened their mouth, they dropped a Bible verse, they just prayed about everything. They seemed to be enamored with the sum and substance, as well as the accoutrements of the Christian faith. They were always in church, and they're probably a decent person to boot, right? And uh, and that, that sense of just kind of contagious enthusiasm that pervaded their whole personality um, is what I understood love of God to consist in, right? That that's, that's what loving God must mean. And, uh, and so I had to, in order to love God, I, I needed to really kind of double down on that, on that conception. I needed to sort of really beef up the extent to which I took a kind of emotional delight in religiosity and things religious, as well as being, you know, good to my neighbor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I now realize that that's absolutely wrong. That's totally wrong. And uh, the Catholic faith helped me here tremendously. Uh, St. Francis de Sales has a book called The Introduction to the Devout Life, where he talks about what do we mean when we talk about a devout life, a holy life, an imitable life, the kind of life we should strive to live as Catholics. And the first chapter of that book is just magnificent. He goes through and he says, well, you know, is true devotion giving gifts to the poor? He says, no. Is it, um, you know, is it, Praying prayers, praying the rosary, praying the liturgy? No. Uh, is it fasting? No. And he runs through, like, all the accoutrements and says it's none of those things. It's none of those things. And you can't reduce the love of God to any kind of behavior, or for that matter, even to any kind of uh, uh, effective emotional response. And that was, you know, when I was a kid, I thought to love somebody means you, you have sort of passionate attraction to them. And that to love God, I had to have this kind of passionate attraction. But then I encountered, well, not only Francis de Sales, but people like John of the Cross. Um, in, in contemporary world, people like Mother Teresa or Therese of Lisieux. And they all write about this condition that happens to the saints on their way to holiness, where they find all of that stuff nauseating, where they find the, pra- the religious activity, the praying of prayers, uh, the thinking of thoughts, uh, the kind of emotional enthusiasm invested in their Catholic faith—they they just they they come to find it just utterly empty and hollow and unsatisfying and vain, to the extent that they just utterly despair of themselves and 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 of their ability to ever get anything right. And Mother Teresa would would say that you know she felt utterly abandoned by God. Strange. I mean, we look at her and go, "This is a person whose life was just absolutely characterized by imitation of Christ and holiness," and yet she herself felt like. You know, God's cast me off, and I'm completely alone, and I'm bereft. And Therese of Lisieux, in her story of the soul, talks about a period in her life where she hated to hear about God or the saints or the life to come or grace or the sacraments or any of it. Wow. Right? And and here's the great mystery that the Catholic faith, the mystical tradition of Catholicism, teaches that that, that itself is not incompatible with holiness. And Pope Benedict writes that that going through that kind of dark night of the soul where, where, where the religious language and activity becomes kind of uh, almost hateful to me, and I, and I feel bereft and lost and utterly in the darkness, can be an occasion for a deep conformity to Christ in his state of dereliction on the cross. The Christ who prayed, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, and it opens us up to an experience of, of wordless, uh, 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 deep empathy 
with the suffering, the loss, the alienated. And that it's the, it is the conformity to God in charity, right? It's not any kind of, you know, it's not simply, you know, the, the willful exertion of my passions, trying to drill up some kind of affection, but it is, it is when, I, when I've been transformed so that I see the world through Christ's eyes, when I, when I see in the person of my neighbor um, the suffering, the poor, um, in need of succor, uh, with whom I can identify in solidarity. That that's that is um, that's the ultimate fulfillment of the Christian life. Now that's a that requires a mystical transformation. That's a supernatural transformation that's required of me. But that's that is ultimately the truth of the mystical path. That's the truth of the Catholic tradition. It's charity, not as a felt emotion, not as an affection, but as a disposition of the will that's been radically transformed through grace. Right, and that and that's compatible with all that kind of darkness, all that kind of. Uh, you know, John of the Cross calls it the dark night of the sense, yeah. the dark night of the soul. Um, and uh, and so, you know, the disposition to get that right, the the recognition that you know I need to I need to um, uh, to to grow in that kind of love of God. Um, I need to transcend myself. Uh, the things of the world, like, really aren't where my happiness lies. As long as I'm oriented in that direction, then I'm then I'm that I'm fulfilling the command to love God and love neighbor, and it 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 admits of progress, and this is the this is the part about the Calvinism that's deceptive to you. Like, you're thinking about the true love of God and neighbor as if it were something that could be measured, you know, on a scale, and that you have to get to the maximal degree in order to have fulfilled it. That's not the Catholic position. The Catholic position is that if you're in the state of grace, you've fulfilled the command, because your will is pointed in the right direction. Okay. And as long as you're open and you allow the, you know, the, the sculptor with his chisel to come mm-hmm. by and chisel away all of the impuri- impurities and imperfections that are, that are accretions to your soul uh-huh. and reshape and reform you after the image of Christ, as long as you submit yourself to that process willingly, then you're, you're on the path. You're doing what is needful, and you are loving God to the, to the best of your ability given your state in the spiritual life. So it's absolutely achievable. It's absolutely achievable. Peter, thank you so much for your excellent letter from uh, Minnesota. Call to communion here on EWTN. Today we're doing a mailbag program. Going to tackle a whole bunch of emails between now and the top of the hour, including this one from Vincent. Dr. Andrews, thanks for your insightful thoughts regarding the church. You're an inspiration to me and all the people that listen to you. Last week, someone asked if Martin Luther had an influence on modern democratic society. You stated that he had partial influence, and you went on to use one of his quotations, quote, Reason is a whore, the greatest enemy that faith has. It never comes to the aid of spiritual things, but more frequently than not, struggles against the divine word, treating with contempt all that emanates from God. Well, when I heard this quote, I felt it had more influence on Karl Marx than it had on the founders of this great country. Can you please speak about the correlation, if any, of Martin Luther and Karl Marx? Thanks, Vincent. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so, oh, back up, back up here. Um, I throw that quote out from Luther often about reason being a whore and the worst enemy of faith, and there's uh-huh. other texts from Luther uh, that underscore his irrationalism. Um I don't think that it's that specifically that uh, that undergirded his influence on 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 uh, on modern democracy, right? I I, don't, I, I didn't cite that, or if okay. I did, I, I didn't mean to. Right? Okay. There's other things about Luther's uh, influence that that changed Western culture. You know, Luther was a strong believer 
in uh, a doctrine that he invented called the priesthood of all believers, which is he, he wanted to eliminate the kind of society of orders that was implicit within the hierarchy of the church and just, you know, uh, diminish or, uh, or eradicate the difference between priest and non-priest, clergy and lay. And, and though he did not intend that to be political, he, he never wanted that to result in a kind of overturning of the political order or any kind of populism. Uh-huh. He was really anti-populist personally. That's absolutely where it went. And so, you know, what Luther intended and what his audience heard were not the same thing. And particularly, uh, well, in Germany, but also in France and Switzerland, there was a popular reception of Lutheranism that absolutely led in, in anti-hierarchical populist directions um, and that, uh, that, uh, that, you know, were an influence on the revolutionary spirit of the age. Now, what happened within Calvinism is that populism was tamed by a kind of republicanism, you know, uh, uh, you know, not not the immediate rule of the people, but but a delegated rule to to uh, to authorities who re- who ruled in the name of the people uh-huh. um, that were not necessarily popularly elected, and that's how Presbyterian government works works within the Presbyterian Church. You you have the, the rule by by presbyters, right, um, rather than by democratic vote, okay. and so you know some of the. Uh, we see that that emerges, of course, big time in Puritanism, which absolutely is an influence on the American Revolution. Now, there are a lot of other influences on the American Revolution. I mean, the pagan philosophical tradition, the mm-hmm. Enlightenment tradition, were a massive influence on the minds of the fathers. But you better believe they were all schooled in New England Puritan thought, covenant theology, and Presbyterian government. Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. Was it, but that his was... question was about Lutheran Marx. It was. Yeah. And, um, and, um, that that's that that's a different one, um, and uh, there is a there is a connection, but it's fairly attenuated and it passes through a lot of intermediate stages. So actually, I'm gonna have to come back to that one. All right, fair enough. Here's one now from Kate. Is it correct to say that since the Blessed Virgin Mary was predestined to be the Mother of God, she was given no option to exercise her free will to say no to Angel Gabriel? Well, if that's not the case, and she said no, how would the redemption plan have worked out? Right. Okay. So here's here's the problem in your question. You're assuming that if if uh, if God predestines an outcome, that we don't cho- freely choose it. You, you imagine that those things are that that's a zero sum game, uh-huh. right? And the Catholic position is that uh, that God determines that we will freely choose things. Okay. God determines yes. that we will freely choose things. And God made God determines that I will freely choose a specific thing, and so God is in control of even my free human actions, but in a way that still leaves them free. Okay. Now you now you know philosophers can quibble about how to work that out practically, but that's the doctrine. The doctrine is that God's providence and predestination do not over right human freedom, but work within the context of human freedom. Kate, thanks for your question. Here's a quick one going to break from John. James 5.16 advises us to confess our sins one to another. Most Protestant churches do not offer private confession, but some Protestants, after reading James 5.16, have a desire to confess their sins. If a Protestant asks a Catholic priest to hear his or her confession, would the priest agree to do so? Depends, depends, depends. So a priest can quite literally listen to a Protestant confess his sins, uh-huh. but he can only grant absolution in very restricted circumstances. If the Protestant is in danger of death, mm-hmm. if the Protestant is in danger of death 
and manifests Catholic faith towards the sacraments, then a priest can absolve a Protestant of his sins. Otherwise, he can hear them, but he can't absolve. So sometimes Protestants will find themselves in a Catholic confessional and the priest will say something like, well, you know, may God have mercy on you, but he's not, he can't say the words, I absolve you. Got it. John, thanks so much for your email. Lots more coming up on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion on this uh, Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Uh, we're taking your emails today uh, from, you know, probably the last couple of weeks or so. And one of the ones that we tackled before the break was from Vincent, who was asking about uh, the influence of Martin Luther on Karl Marx. Any thoughts there? Yeah. So I, I, as I said in previous part of the show before the break, I need to kind of get my ducks in a row mentally yes. to answer that question. Yes. So, so basically, there is a line. But it runs basically from Luther to Kant to Hegel to Marx. Oh, boy. Right? So there's a dialectic that takes place between these thinkers that, that you, you can't understand Marx without understanding Hegel. And you can't understand Hegel without Kant. Um, and, uh, and, and the critique of knowledge, which is, you know, dogmatically Luther asserts uh-huh. the, the, the limits and, of reason and, and uh, it embraces a kind of irrationality. Kant works out a philosophical critique, a rigorous philosophical critique of knowledge, I and mean, that's what he's famous for. So mm. they're kind of Lutheran accents as well in Kant. Now, if you want to get a, uh, a, a kind of a deeper dive in that question, uh-huh. there's a wonderful article at the at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on Luther's influence on modern philosophy, and it'll trace these things out for you. Well, there we go. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's an anonymous email that we received. Hello, Mr. Price and Dr. Anders. I understand the church's stances on particular topics, but given my own feelings and desires, I'm finding it hard to simply follow what the church has to say. A particular example of this would be what the church says about treating gender dysphoria. By my own experience with this, I often feel like this desire is a good thing. That is to say, the desire caused by my gender dysphoria seems to me intuitively to be a good thing. In typical situations, I find my intuition on moral matters is rather accurate. However, understanding that the church says otherwise, I turn to my reason and knowledge of philosophy to try and understand. The problem I find in this regard is that I can't find anything from the church that I don't find in some way lacking. I have also seen particularly strong arguments made from a Catholic perspective that would seem to disagree with the Church's position, notably a work from Dr. Peter Cataldo, a Catholic ethicist. That document is Catholic Teaching on the Human Person and Gender Dysphoria. He notes in the document that it's his personal opinion as an ethicist, not an authoritative source for Church teaching. So, my question to you, Dr. Anders, is... How can I reconcile my personal disagreement with the church's reasoning on such matters? And do you have any resources I could look up at? uh, Let me restate that. Do you have any resources I could look into to try to better understand the church's position at a deeper level? Thank you, Anonymous. Okay, thanks, Anonymous. I really appreciate the question. So um, I'm going to try and give a nuanced answer to this question, and it probably won't satisfy you completely. First of all, uh, is it okay to find fault with the philosophical reasoning that lies behind a, the moral conclusions of magisterial teaching? And in a broad sense, the answer to that question is yes. 
Okay, uh, so if you look, say, for example, on the, um, the infallible teaching of the Church regarding the impermissibility of contraception, well, I can't dissent from that. That's, I mean, that's, that's part of the tradition that's right. infallibly taught. But if you look over 2,000 years of Catholic history, you actually find a lot of different kinds of arguments brought forth to defend that position. And, uh, and some of them are very different from one another. And, you know, it's peculiar to the 20th century, the, the kind of personalist arguments that we find in Paul VI and especially in John Paul II, that now are kind of the stock and trade of the moral theologian when dealing with the question of contraception. But those questions are distinctly—those answers, those way of reasoning is distinctly modern and, and really limited to the modern pontificate, and you won't find that kind of reasoning in, in earlier centuries. Um, I find the personalist arguments fairly compelling. Uh, honestly, I don't always find the, the arguments of the medieval theologians for that compelling. And in fact, I remember I, I once had a conversation with a Catholic priest who dissented from the Church's teaching, and he, he made kind of a thing out of it. He was kind of proud of his dissent. And, uh, and when I talked to him about it, um, he, he attacked a straw man. He kept bringing forth um, arguments from, from medieval, medieval physiology and anatomy and saying, well, you know, these were stupid arguments, so we don't have to follow the Church's teaching. Well, they were stupid arguments, <laughs> but there were better ones that he was ignoring, right? And so he was kind of being selective in his judgment. Uh, okay. Um, and y- you do have an absolute duty to conscience. And conscience is a judgment of the practical reason. And so it's incumbent on us to, to, to reason our way through, you know, the moral thicket of views, right? So I encourage you to do that. Um, there is a document that I would also encourage you to read. Um, it's called, it's from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, when Ratzinger was the prefect, uh-huh. and it's called On the Ecclesial Vocation of a Theologian. And it's, it's the, 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 the nature and the kind of assent that the theologian has to make to, um, to, uh, to magisterial proclamations, and, and the, the time and manner in which dissent from those proclamations is allowable, and when it isn't. Right, and so it gives you a fairly nuanced answer to this question about how, you know how to think your way through the moral reasoning of the magisterium when you find it problematic, and what to do if you find yourself in opposition to it. And then the CDF and Ratzinger, who becomes pope, recognizes the real possibility that someone might be persuaded in their own mind that the church's arguments for something are wrong, and what to do when that happens to you. Right, and uh, and let me give you the short answer: you don't bail on the church. Okay, but go read the document. Also, his commentary on the Professio Fide. Uh, it's kind of a, a sister document to the Ecclesial Vocation of the Theologian. Um, the commentary on the Professio Fide, also written by then Cardinal, then afterwards Pope Benedict. Um, you know, when it comes to the Church's writing about human sexuality, gender, and gender identity, the only document that comes to mind is he, uh, male and female, he created them, uh-huh. which was a product of the uh, the the uh, Congregation for Catholic Education, um, but it gets into Catholic anthropology. Um, and then, uh, you know, finally, and this is just my own take on it, and mm. I, I imagine if you're a philosophically inclined person who suffers from gender dysphoria, you're probably way down this road farther than I am. You know more about the topic than I do. But it, it strikes me, it's fairly obvious in the modern world, that discussion on this question is confused in that uh, people fail to distinguish the the phenomena of gender dysphoria 
from the larger cultural, political, ideological narrative about that phenomenon. And oftentimes when people begin to struggle with gender dysphoria, they get they get wrapped up on the idea that that sort of the modern language and discourse and the philosophical categories that are applied to that, you know, in the popular world is the only way of looking at it. And that, you know, that it's either either a decision to acknowledge gender dysphoria and the whole ideology that goes along with that in the modern world uh, or or to deny it altogether. And I think we can have a much more nuanced perspective. Sure. Thanks so much for your anonymous email. One of the uh, emails we found this week in the EWTN mailbag here for Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Here's one now from uh, Tanner who says, Dr. Anders, I was wondering if a sacrament is something that brings about that which it signifies, what does each of the seven sacraments signify? Thank you, Tanner. Right. Yeah, great question. Appreciate it. So the baptism signifies our death and resurrection with Jesus. You go down in the water, you know, as if you were descending to the dead, come up out of it as if you're rising from the dead. And uh, the, the washing of dirt from the body as a symbol for the purification of sin from the soul. So both of those things are symbolized by baptism. Okay. Um, uh, the the oil of confirmation is a symbol for the receipt of the Holy Spirit, and anointing is a sacrament. You know, not sacrament is a sign, is a ritual that was frequently utilized in the Old Testament to consecrate persons to sacred offices, kingship, prophecy, and priesthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's borrowed from the ritual of Israel, but invested. And and when those people were 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 ordained. Uh, they often received a gift of God's Spirit to empower them to do their jobs. Uh, the difference with the sacrament of confirmation is that it's not often, it's always, right? The sacrament yeah. works ex opere operato, right? Mm-hmm. So as long as you don't have any any impediments in your disposition, it automatically brings the gift of the Spirit. Uh, the, the sacrament of the Eucharist, whew, whoa, that's a big one in yeah. terms of the symbolism there. There's a number of things that are being symbolized. So... The Council of Trent says that we have to distinguish the Eucharist as a sacrifice from the Eucharist as a sacrament, and that the difference between the two is very great. So we've got two different modes of signification, depending on whether we consider the Eucharist as a sacrifice or as a sacrament. Let's start with the sacrifice, because that's the most important one. As the sacrifice, Pope Pius Twelfth. Uh, encapsulates 2,000 years of Catholic tradition when he says that the double consecration of bread and wine, bread over here, wine over there, symbolizes the separation of Christ's body from his blood. So if you want to, if you want to symbolically represent a person's death, a good way to do it is to find symbols of, of body and blood and show them in a state of separation. Body over here, blood over there. If your body and blood are not in the same place, you're right and truly dead. So that's what's symbolized by the double consecration is the death of Christ. But taken as a sacrament, what is symbolized is presence. The body of Christ given for me, present with me, dwelling with me, consumed by me, he in whom I live and move and have I being, in my being, comes to indwell me in a very intimate and personal way. So a different thing is symbolized. Now, for all of you very sensitive Catholics who, 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 whose hair goes on fire— 
whenever you hear the word Eucharist and symbol used in the same sentence. <laughs> um, Tom, did I say the Eucharist is just a symbol? You did not. I did not say that. It no. is absolutely not just a symbol. We, yes, here at EW10, we definitely believe the teaching of the Church that Christ is really, truly, and substantially present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, in the Blessed Sacrament. Yes, we believe in the real presence 100%. Amen. But it's also a symbol. It's not just a symbol. Mm -hmm. It's the real presence of Christ present in a symbol, right? Yeah. All right. So that's uh, let's see that we did we did three. Now let's mm -hmm. do the next one. Um, uh, how about marriage? We'll sure. go to marriage next. So marriage, Scripture tells us, is a sign of Christ dying on the cross for the sake of His bride, the Church, to bring her to God and to make her holy and to present her without any stain or wrinkle. And so husband and wife are to die to themselves uh, and uh, crucify themselves and their passions and their desires for the sake of the other whom they would bring to God in holiness, right? That's what's yep. symbolized by marriage. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the symbol of ordination is that they are entrusted with a sacred office to celebrate the sacraments worthily, and that is, in fact, imparted to them by the, by the sign of that imposition of the bishop's hands, All right? Um, and then uh, the the uh, uh, the sacrament of anointing is a sign again of Christ of this presence of the Holy Spirit to bring healing and comfort in the face of grave affliction. Did I leave anyone out? Don't think so. I, think I got them all. I think you did. Okay. I'm very very appreciative of that great answer. Thanks so much uh, for your email. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Well, because it is Friday, that means that tonight you're going to watch or listen to EWTN News in depth with Monse Alvarado. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern. This is our roundtable discussion series with in-depth interviews. Uh, examining and analyzing important issues, news, and events from an authentically Catholic perspective. It is a perfect show for a Friday evening as Monse and her great team take a look at all the news that has happened over the past seven days, and they say, okay, what does this mean to us, to me? Find out about it tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, on EWTN radio and television. It is EWTN News in Depth. Tom? Uh, yes. I left out confession. Did you? Yes. Bad boy. That was bad boy, yes. Yeah. So in a nutshell, when the priest says the words, I absolve you, it both symbolizes and effects God's forgiveness. Ah. So there's the symbol of confession. There it is. Now I got confession in there, too. Good job. All right, here's one now from Walter. Dear Dr. Andrews, you said recently that if you love God and love your neighbor, that you'll go to heaven. Your statement made me feel so good for my family, my friends, myself, and the world. My fear is that while many really do love God and their neighbor, but also do sin against God and their neighbor at times, there are billions of souls in this situation of truly loving and truly sinning. Being free of all mortal sin at the time of death is not likely for most of us. I learned in Catholic school that one real mortal sin puts you in hell, regardless of if you love God and neighbors. Any further comments that you could add? Yeah, so just a, just a quick qualification. Um, if you commit a mortal sin, by definition, you're not loving God and neighbor. Uh -huh. So that, that last statement about, well, even if you love God and neighbor, if you commit a mortal sin, you can't. Well, no, you didn't love God and neighbor. That's why you mortally sinned. Got right? it, got it. But, but the other thing about your question is it seems to imply a kind of precariousness in our moral life that I don't think is, is borne out in experience or Catholic tradition. There are people for whom the the possibility of mortal sin is a very real possibility. It's a it's a kind of probability. 
and they're tilting over into mortal sin constantly, or they just live habitually in mortal sin. And, and for such souls, yeah, making it to heaven is going to be extraordinarily difficult. But understand that the Catholic Church has a doctrine not of a kind of uh, a kind of libertarian indifference to the right or wrong, where at any moment, you know, the wind might come and blow us one way or the other, um, but of moral progress that uh, that is incarnate in virtues. Now, virtues are stable habits of the soul inclining us to do the good. And so the goal of Catholic life, the goal of, of, the, of the good life, of the human life mm-hmm. of any kind, Catholic or not, is to develop those virtues so that so that the good, the choice of the good, becomes literally second nature to us. And, um, you know, here's, a, here's a, an example I think is easy to understand. There is just no way that, that, that most people are going to, like, up and kill their families. Some people do. You hear about these, these horror shows where some guy, you mm. know, comes in and shoots his family to death. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Most people are not going to do that. It's unthinkable to them. They may do other things, but they're just not— it's not a moral possibility for them to even contemplate. Okay. Right? Now, imagine being in that condition where it's just, like, not conceivable that you would do that thing. I- extend that inability to sin to more and more areas of your life. You know, through good formation, through good habits, through the reliance on grace, it can become the case that sin is almost unthinkable to you. And it would take something truly extraordinary for you to commit a mortal sin. Um so keep in mind that Christ was impeccable. That is to say, it was impossible for him to sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet he had a human soul. The Blessed Virgin was impeccable. And of course, she had a human soul. And there are saints who are all but impeccable, all but impeccable, uh, because they have they have been so powerfully formed in virtue uh-huh. that the thought of doing anything contrary to virtue is just, they would they would literally sooner die. So that's the way to solve the dilemma that you've raised, is, is make it your purpose in life to develop those habits of virtue. And that starts in your imagination and in your attention, which is why meditation, contemplation, and the life of prayer are so central to growth and holiness, because it's a training of your psychology, it's a training of your habits of mind and willing that then gets worked out in practical action. Walter, thanks so much for your email today. Call to communion here on EWTN on our Mailbag Friday program. Here's a question now from uh, Gerard, who says, What do you say to someone who says Jesus is the Son of God, but not God? Well, that's not the Catholic faith now, is it? <laughs> you know, that's not—I mean, what I say to them is that, yeah, that that's not Orthodox Christian faith. So, I yeah. mean— the, the, the biblical case for the divinity of Christ falls primarily on the Gospel of John that says quite literally that in the beginning was the Word of God, and he was God with the beginning, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah. And uh, St. Paul, who says of Christ that he is in the very form of God, right? I mean, so uh, that's the biblical teaching, and, and it, of course, gets worked out in tradition in the dogma of the Trinity, which is guaranteed by the infallibility of the Church given to Christ by Christ to St. Peter and the rest of them, when he said, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So, you know, the strength of the infallible Catholic tradition and the inspiration of the Bible uh, is our foundation for this doctrine. There you go. Gerard, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Dan, who is uh, an avid listener from Calgary, Canada. He says, I have a question about the soul. What is the Catholic take on the proliferation of the soul? 
When we are conceived, is our soul a spiritual offspring of the souls of our parents, similar to how our parents' DNA is combined to create a special, a separate physical being? Or is each individual soul created from nothing by God and somehow fused with our physical being at the instant of conception? Or by a later process of insolment? Love your show, Dan in Canada. Oh, option B. Option B. Option B is the dogma of the church, that the soul is directly and immediately created by God at the moment of conception. Well, there it is. All right, and thank you uh, so much uh, for yours. Glad that you're listening to us in Calgary. Here's a great question now from Carol, who says, I was recently listening to Call to Communion. Your response to a man's concern that the 11 disciples gave their life and died for the love of Jesus. Nothing makes me more aware that Jesus was who he said he was divine, that they were willing to die rather than walk away. Jesus was worth the sacrifice. To me, that is great proof. What do you think? Well, sure, sure. That's one of the motives of credibility is the death of the martyrs. Yeah. And that was one of the things that impressed the pagans because, you know, nobody ever died for Zeus. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. That's true. All right. And uh, Carol, thanks so much uh, for your email. It's called Communion here on EWTN Radio. And here's a here's a question that's uh, this is from Ben in Rapid City, South Dakota. What is the process that needs to be followed for a newly confirmed, newly Catholic man to get married in the church to a Catholic woman who has never been married under the following scenario? Here it is. The man's first marriage was a valid under the law of his state of residence, common law marriage that he later got annulled as if it never happened ab initio, under that state's law upon the grounds of fraud. Therefore, thereafter, he got legally married to another man, but later got... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you just say a man got legally married to another man? I did. Okay. Legally is in quotes. Okay. Okay. Thereafter, he got, quote, legally married to another man, but later got divorced secularly. He then renounced and repented of homosexuality. Before the man can become married to the woman in the church by a priest, is he required to obtain a declaration of ecclesiastical nullity regarding one or more of these prior, quote, marriages? Thanks, Ben, in Rapid City. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate the question. So, um, yes, you would need to get an annulment for the marriage, the putative marriage to the woman— um, but since the Catholic Church doesn't recognize that there is such a thing as gay marriage, um, that's a that's a big nothing. You don't yeah. you don't you you know you don't have to get absolved for something that doesn't exist, right? Uh, you don't get a, you don't there's no, there can be no presumption of validity in such a relationship, um, and so repentance is the only appropriate response there, not declaration of nullity. But for the first one, yeah, you would. But but just based on what you've said, I would say that that annulment is uh, is all but certain to be granted. I mean, if there was a finding of fraud by a civil court, um, I mean, there are certain forms of fraud that are impediments to valid marriage in the Catholic Church as well. And there are probably about there are probably several other legal grounds or impediments that are recognized for the nullity of that marriage. So shouldn't be a problem. But you will need to get the declaration of nullity. Very good. And we'll close with this one from Jim in New York. My question deals with the translation of Matthew 16, 19, where Christ gives his authority to bind and loose on earth. Catholic translations are clear in showing the church binds and looses on earth and heaven binds or looses in response. Quote, 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Many Protestant versions translate this verse in a way that undercuts the Catholic version, stating that what the church binds or looses, loosens has already been bound or loosened in heaven. For example, the NASB, which says, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. These translations appear to be saying something fundamentally different from each other. The first presents the church in a much more authoritative role. The second clearly weakens this by presenting the church's binding and loosening as simply stating a reality that already pre-exists in heaven. Since this speaks directly to the heart of the church's authority, which translation is truer to the original language, the Catholic or the Protestant? Okay, so um, the, the the Greek word that's uh, translated, you know, will be bound, is in the future indicative, it's in future tense indicative uh, middle, third person, okay. person singular. So, so um, it's not the... Um, What's the? Try, I've forgotten the English grammatical terms for "shall have been," right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it yeah, yeah, will be, will be. Yeah. yeah. It's a little, a little bit tricky. I think you know once you're uh, a little bit past a uh, sophomore English. Sure. Sure. But uh, that's just kind of the way it works. Well, we got rid of uh, not future not, perfect. That's it. Future perfect. That's it. Yeah. It's not. It's not in the future perfect uh, tense. Okay. It's just in the future indicative. Okay, yeah. so so the more the the better translation would be, will be, will be. Yeah. Okay, that's what it's going to be. Wow, we uh, were able to answer a whole bunch of emails in this special mailbag edition of our program today, and I'm delighted that we did. Dr. David Anders, have a great weekend. Thank you. We hope everybody has a great weekend. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN. 2 p.m. Eastern is our broadcast. You can check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. Once you're there, look for the words Podcast Central in the upper right corner. Click on that and it'll take you to all of our shows in alphabetical order. Scroll down a little bit to Call to Communion and off you go. On behalf of our producer, Charles Beery, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Have that great weekend that we're uh, talking about here. We'll see you on Monday right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and a great weekend. God bless. Thank you.